This is Sermon Smith, a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation, and my name is John Chandler. My guest today is Isaac Anderson. Isaac is a teaching pastor and writer-in-residence at Jacob's Well, which is a church in Kansas City. We previously actually had Tim Keel, who is the lead pastor at that church, Jacob's Well, and he was one of our early interviews. It's been, golly, it's been a couple years ago at least, and Tim's encouraged me a couple times to say, you should really interview Isaac because his process is so different from mine and so unique. And I certainly expected that to be the case after meeting Isaac recently, but just even knowing he comes much more from a writer background, just very different than uh, Tim and personality and approach. And you'll hear that, and that'll come through. And again, there's unique nuances that I think will be helpful and beneficial for all of us to pick up. I enjoyed this one. I always enjoy them, but, you know, what can you do? Our partner this week is Logos Bible Software. I've mentioned it many times, but a week or two ago, I got another check from Logos, which means someone else has been supporting the podcast. And so thank you for that. If you are interested in Bible software, Logos is my favorite. You can go to logos.com slash sermonsmith, and there's a coupon code there where you can get 10% off any base package. And a portion of your purchase will come back to support the podcast and the hosting costs and my time and all that. So thanks for considering that. If you're looking, uh, that's a good one to look at. Works on any platform, mobile, Windows, Mac, uh, you name it. And their apps are really, really useful. All right. Thanks, friends, for listening. And here we are with Isaac Anderson. Always I have to ask people, did I pronounce that right? But I don't have to do that with you. No, you don't. Isaac Anderson's you pretty straightforward. <laughs> Is Anderson in the Bible? I no, don't, I don't I guess not. That. Yeah. yeah. Well, Isaac, uh, tell us about where you are. Tell us about your context. Yeah, I live in Kansas City, Missouri, um, and I work at a church called Jacob's Well. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, then you've heard my friend and uh, fellow pastor Tim Keel talk some about our church. Uh, we're located in the Midtown area of Kansas City. It's a fairly, um, I don't know, it's a its a kind of arts incubator kind of neighborhood. There's a school nearby, University of Missouri, Kansas City. It's um, got shopping districts and lots of bars and all that sort of thing. Um, and we're nestled back in a neighborhood of Midtown. And so I've been working there about five years now as a teaching pastor and also working with various justice uh, initiatives that we're involved with. And I do that. And then I also part-time am a writer, went and got an MFA in creative writing a few years ago. And so I spend part of my time um, functioning as a little bit of a writer in residence in our community, writing essays, predominantly nonfiction essays, which sound terribly boring, but um, <laughs> that's that's part of my life and part of what I'm into. So that's me. Uh, that's us in a nutshell. And uh, so I'll... First of all, I'm excited to have you because I just think the process that you'll bring just out of your writing background will be interesting. And I'll say this, and nobody can see you blushing, so blush away. But uh, Tim, since I so when I interviewed Tim, Tim was one of my first interviews, so it's been two oh, and a cool. half years ago. Uh, Tim's probably pestered me at least three times to say, 
John, you got to have you got to have Isaac on. You got to have Isaac on because I just think he'd bring a different voice. So no pressure. <laughs> right. Well, that's very very kind of him. But uh, but yeah, and so you and I finally ever so briefly had a chance to even meet a month month and a half ago. So that's I'm excited right. excited to have this yeah, conversation. Well, likewise, likewise. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Uh, so we we don't need to go real in depth here. Uh, I but obviously when I interviewed Tim, he talked a little bit about how sermon planning happens there. Um, basically the two things that I remember from that as long ago as that was, was that he gets to go sit in some cush cabin one, once a year in Colorado. And I, I remember that for the longest time he wanted to do revelation and he was finally about to do it. So that tells you how long ago that was. If you remember revelation. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a year or two years ago, something like that. So that's not a very good summary. So maybe you can do a better job of summarizing what's the, what's the long-term sermon planning look like at, at Jacob's well? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, I don't know that we're interesting in that respect necessarily, but we're definitely a, an amalgam of like structured and still, um, unstructured in that Tim comes back from study leave with some ideas for sermon series and ideas for various, uh, books or, uh, parts of scripture that he wants to look more closely at. And then we get together as a Kairos team. Kairos is the name of our team that oversees Sunday morning gatherings, Sunday evening gatherings. And so we get together as a team and begin to think about how those series might fit in the overarching, in the arc of the year. And sometimes all of the series he brings to the table um, make their way in. Sometimes I've been thinking about series of one sort or another, and sometimes those make their way in. It's a pretty collaborative process at that point. And if we're lucky, then we get maybe six months uh, planned out solid. And maybe we have, you know, another series that we know we want to do for Advent or something like that. But then there's usually a space of two or three or four months where we still aren't sure exactly what should go there. And we end up just kind of breaking and going about our lives for a while and then coming back maybe a couple months later. And by then we have a little bit better sense of how the series we're in currently is playing out and what the implications might be for the next season of our life together. And so, as I said, there's some structure and then there's also some at least attempts to listen to the spirit and discern what else is happening in our community and what that might say about where we need to go next. And and typically the way you do it there, as I recall, is multiple. It's not that Tim might do a series and then you might do a series. It's that multiple voices participate in each series. Yeah. Thanks for um, reminding me of that. So yeah, to be clear, as we plan the series, typically, um, if it's a if if it's a series Tim has brought to the table, then he'll typically maybe start off doing the first couple weeks, maybe even the first three weeks of that series. But we have a number of teaching pastors on our staff: Tim, myself, um, a woman named Jesse Marcus, who's a really gifted communicator. And then our our uh, executive pastor, Jim Gum, speaks pretty regularly, and we have a couple other people who aren't on our staff, but that, who we bring in regularly to speak. So typically, there will be a roster of four or five people who are joining in a series. If it's, eight, if it's an eight-week series, we'll have three or four people at least who are uh, bringing something 
to bear during that time. And um, if I'm the one who came up with the idea for the series, maybe I will start that series and then hand it off to someone else. But that's basically how we think about or how we schedule those things. Someone gets the ball rolling and then others of us come and fill in and add our own voices. And typically, how often do you preach? Um, right now, I would guess um, once a month. I'm not terribly, um, I'm not terribly, like very heavily scheduled in that respect. And to be honest, that's that's a rhythm I'm pretty comfortable with. There was a period of my life when I was in my 20s, early on doing ministry, where I was a primary communicator and uh, speaking a lot more regularly. And I've gotten to the point where, um, because of the other writing I'm trying to do and and the other work I'm involved in, I'm I'm more comfortable spacing it out like that. And um, yeah, doing once a month or so. So at any given time, I mean, if you roughly have six months planned out, do you even know what dates you're doing six months out? Six months out, I will know the dates. Um, sometimes even before I know the passage or the or the material. So right now we have our summer planned up until the, I'm speaking to you on, it looks like April 21st. Yep. And um, right now we have, because Tim is actually getting ready to go on sabbatical for the summer, we have May, June, July, and August scheduled out. And I know what my dates are, and I actually know what the passages are for that season. But when we get to September, we have really nothing set in stone uh, concerning that fall season. We've got to still figure that out together. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so how many, how many do you, I mean, some you might have out there, but you haven't even started work on, you just know dates and texts, but how many do you typically juggle at a time in your mind? Is it just the next one since you have about a month between each one? Yeah, because I have that luxury. It's typically just one after the next, you know, um, there are occasions of course, where I carry a notebook around with me and I've got sermons brewing, just ideas that have come to me in one time or another. And so, there'll be a little bit of that where I'm, I'm putting thoughts together on the fly just as I live my life. But when it comes to formally preparing for a sermon, it's pretty much just, okay, this is the next one I'll be working on. And I typically won't start thinking hard about that one until two weeks, maybe even 10 days out. Yeah. And you talk about, so I, I like to get into nitty gritty stuff. You talk sure. about the notebook that you carry around. Is that a pocket yeah. notebook or like a standard Moleskina or what kind of notebook? It's a it's a pocket notebook. Um, I actually it's over on my desk right now. I don't have it in my pocket, but um, yeah, it's it fits. It's something I learned to do when I was in grad school. It really was more of a writing practice first than yeah. it was a, a preaching practice. But I try to have a pen on me at most times and and a notebook, and that's not always the case. But yeah, it just goes right in my right pocket, and I can that way. I don't have to if I'm going to hear someone speak or I'm going to a reading or something like that. I don't have to worry about having something to write on. So th- this is a I'm gonna I'm gonna lean in on this discipline yep. a little bit because it's a it's a it's a discipline I've longed to have and I've always yeah. been fascinated by, which is just the whole stopping in the middle of anything you know, yeah. to say, I got to jot something down. Yeah. And so for me, you know, for a long time, I carried a notebook in my back pocket. Uh, now I use an app on my phone. Um, yep. If I just want to capture little journal ideas, I have an app for that or I have another app. But more often than not, I find the only things I'm capturing are in the morning, I'll stop and kind of check in just a little bit. Yep. Uh, and then I always have good intentions to do it the rest of the day. But most sure. of the time, 
The only things I stop to capture are uh, really some <laughs> sermon ideas or yep. some to do that comes to mind, and I capture those real quick. Yep. Uh, I would love to be more, you know, of the on the fly introspective. Oh, look how interesting that is! I'm going to write that down so I can think about it more later. Right. Absolutely. What are we all? About. Well, I, yeah. I mean, so you said that was a. Uh, a discipline that you started in. in I think discipline, I think, yeah, I think discipline is, um, has been truer of my life at certain periods than others. To be honest, this is, I don't know that I'd characterize it as a discipline these days (laughs) as much as just kind of like, (laughs) yeah, as it's like a, it's like a security blanket, you know, I know I've got it there, but in terms of breaking into it, um, I've, I'm looking, I actually just found it on the floor here and, um, (laughs) I'm looking at it right now. And honestly, there are entries. These entries are spaced probably a month apart. Um, and these are, yeah, just, wow. okay. these are just like, you know, there's a, a talk from a guy named John Powell that I went and saw maybe three months ago. There's an interview I did with a guy six months ago. Um, so just very spaced out and random. Um, I do try to discipline myself a little bit more to keep a journal. And I actually do that on my computer. So if I'm writing at length, um, I have a long doc, I have a document that's, you know, now probably a hundred thousand words, something like that. And, and something I've been working, just writing in for two or three years. And so if I'm going to write like with any kind of depth, then I'm going to go to my computer and type. Yeah. So these aren't when you're in that notebook, you're these aren't moments of inspiration on the fly. It's it's more you're in a place where you want to capture because you're at some kind of. Exactly. And sometimes interspersed with little moments on the fly. You know, when we were in Delaware together, John, at that at that conference, Uh and this doesn't happen terribly often for me now, but I wrote down three sermon ideas um, while we were sitting in that room or, or at various times during that week. And just some of what was being said from up front, some that I was hearing from people in conversation sparked a couple things for me. And so I have here two small pages devoted to trying to capture those things. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So one of the questions I commonly ask, but I'm going to change it for you Great. is normally I ask, what is the role of the sermon in your church? Yeah. Uh, which, you know, we would have covered a little bit with Tim, but especially sure. your role is more unique. Uh, I, I'm curious, I, I, and I've, I've listened to a couple of your sermons just to get, you okay. know, a little bit of, of context. So the question mm-hmm. I would ask is, what, what is it that you are trying to accomplish with a sermon when you preach? Hmm, that's a good one. You know, um, let me think. Let me think. Thinking's good. I mean, my, my, so here's my, here's my just kind of reflexive uh, statement, but first off, I'm trying to be changed by the text. Um, you know, I, I kind of grew up being mentored by people who really stressed to me that at the end of the day, this was about being the best learner of whatever it was that you were going to teach. And so First things first, I'm just trying to be affected um, in some way by what I'm encountering in scripture and then what I'm, how I'm thinking about those connections in my own life. And I kind of operate in this mentality that if I can do that well, then I've already succeeded to some degree um, just by allowing myself to be transformed. I, th- I, I think a lot of your listeners will identify with what I'm saying there is my guess. Sure. 
And then I'm also trying to figure out how to persuade um, people to keep going. And that's a, that's a pretty vague, vague way of talking about it, but you can add, you know, whatever word you want in there to keep hoping, to keep trusting, to keep obeying, to keep worshiping, whatever the word might be in a given week. Um, I'm trying to propose, I've, I've been thinking about this idea for a while now. There's a poet named Marie Howe who talks about the counterspell. She talks about how poetry is often a counterspell against whatever spells have been cast on people out in the world and in culture. And oftentimes I think about the sermon as a counterspell to the various spells that we um, hmm. are beset by, you know, as human beings. And so I'm trying to kind of break through the, uh, break through the, complacency, the apathy, the, you know, what, whatever word you want to put in there that we all carry in with us on a Sunday. And I'm trying to remind people that they're living in a reality that is often bigger than what they see right in front of them. And I'm trying to offer them a counter spell that will lead them toward hope or courage or a deeper life to one degree or another. I, I got so enamored with that idea of a counter spell that I I, I trail away. Where did you draw that idea from? The poet, I, I think I got it from a poet named Marie Howe. Hmm, okay. Um, she did an interview. You might, if you're interested in this, you might go, you're familiar, I'm sure, with Krista Tippett and her podcast, sure, On sure. Being. It was, it used to be called Speaking of Faith. And I think it's in the On Being when it's, after it changed its name, they did this interview with Marie Howe. And it's just a brilliant very moving interview. She, she does a poem. I won't, I won't say too much about it, but go listen to the interview and listen to the poem that she does, uh, where she talks about the underneath she's, she's writing in the voice of Mary Magdalene Magdalene from whom seven demons had been cast, cast out. And she channels this person, this character in a way that's just really mesmerizing. And she has this line in that poem, the underneath, it was always with me. And I think about when I'm preaching, I'm often asking myself the question like, okay, you know, there's this surface truth that the text is trying to convey to us, but what is the underneath in me that it's really speaking to? Like, what is the, the subterranean, we might say, anxiety, fear, insecurity, despair that it's addressing? And what is the underneath in the people, my friends in this community that it's speaking to? How can I unearth that, try to access that, try to get the counterspell speaking to that part of us? Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'll track that down, and I'll, I'll add the link if I can to our, to our show cool. notes because that sounds fascinating. Um, okay, uh, so let's talk then about a given a given sermon. You know, okay. uh, you said you start anywhere from ten days to two weeks out. Just yeah. walk us through when you know you're preaching. Do you try to block out extra time for those two weeks and set aside some of your other <laughs> some of your other job responsibilities or how does that start to fall in? It's a good question. When I know that I'm preaching, I, I definitely block out uh, the week leading up to it. And then sometimes the Saturday or the Sunday before that, usually not much beyond that just because it, it doesn't seem realistic oftentimes. But um, those seven days leading up to Sunday, I am being pretty shrewd about the meetings that I'm committing to and the appointments that I'm making and all that sort of thing. Um, 
I begin, if, if I have an assignment coming up, I begin on that previous Saturday or Sunday, like I said, seven or eight days out, reading the text, um, trying to get context, you know, so I'm reading the text, I'm praying through the text. And then of course I'm beginning to study other commentaries and try to figure out exactly what this word means or that word means. Sometimes occasionally I'm memorizing portions of the text to just get it in me a little bit deeper, not always by any means. Um, I'm reading historical, pastoral, theological commentaries, all of that stuff, getting at the sits in Laban, as they say, right? Um, After I do the text context stuff, somewhere in that process, I take out a sheet of paper that where I write at, at the top of the sheet stuff to use. And this is where I just begin to capture any thought that might even remotely connect to what this text is saying or what I might be thinking about uh, speaking on in the week, uh, coming up. And so stuff to use, you know, this is anything from a song lyric to a quote in a movie, to some book I read two years ago. And for some reason it's coming back to me to that on being podcast with Marie Howe, where she talks about this thing, you know, it can be any, any range of things that's going on that sheet of paper. And I will continue to fill that out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, as I'm studying and working. But I'm hoping that by about Monday or Tuesday, I at least have some semblance of an angle or a theme that I'm going to be driving towards. And then by Tuesday or Wednesday, my hope is that I have begun writing, not because I know what I want to say. In fact, I often don't know what I want to say or feel like I have the nugget of what I'm really saying until Thursday, even Friday of that week. But I try to start writing early because I've discovered, and this is a a lesson that I learned from a professor years ago when I was just starting graduate school, a a guy named Scott Cairns, who, uh, is worth reading as well. He's a poet, Greek Orthodox guy. Hmm. Scott Cairns talks about writing as epistemological. He says, you know, oftentimes we operate with this assumption that writing is merely expression, meaning we already know what we have to say. We have an idea we want to communicate. We have a story we want to tell. And now our job is to take that idea, that argument, that story, and just try and express it in the most compelling language possible. When in fact, he says, yes, writing is expression on one hand, but it's also cognition. Writing is how we discover what it is that we know or what we think. Writing is how we begin to really unearth uh, the way that we've experienced this reality. And we need to assume that we're going to discover along the way, a number of things that we wouldn't have seen, you know, when we, if we weren't writing. And so I'm trying to start writing on Tuesday or Wednesday just to get myself in the flow and to try to begin taking one step and then another step and then another step down the path. And I'm trying to do that in faith that the sermon is going to reveal itself as I go, if that makes sense. And when you're talking about writing, you're talking about the literal act of writing, like you're writing sentences and paragraphs. And I'm talking about writing sentences and paragraphs. And I have not ever, for when I was younger, like mid twenties, I think I, I started by scripting on a computer and I discovered pretty early on, I, you know, I started scripting on a computer because my mentor scripted on a computer. And so my sermons would run to whatever it was, 10, 12, 13, 14 pages, something like that. And 
over time that began to feel more and more cumbersome to me. And there's something about writing on the computer that kind of, it makes me feel detached from the content that I'm producing. I don't feel like I'm as close to it or I feel it as viscerally. And it, the, the image that I've used before is it started to feel like Saul's ar armor. You know, David puts on Saul's armor and walks around and just feels clumsy, right? And so he takes the rock and the sling and goes to battle with that. And so for me, about somewhere in my mid-20s, I shifted from writing on the computer to just writing on blank pieces of computer paper with a felt pen and... Um, there's something about the process of handwriting for me, like the tactile uh, nature of that, that keeps me tethered to the sermon in ways that I wouldn't be otherwise. Um, that said, because I start writing Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, I end up producing a lot of pages that end up hmm. just going in the trash after I'm done. Hmm. And I might spend all of Tuesday or maybe even all of Tuesday and Wednesday, just trying to find the way in to the sermon. Like for me, if one of the biggest challenges is figuring out a compelling beginning that isn't just boilerplate, that isn't just some clever uh, anecdote or quip or illustration that'll make someone chuckle, but actually like really hooks us and gets us moving quickly, gets us into the text or into the um, idea that I want to talk about quickly. And so I spend a lot of time just trying to figure out a beginning. And then once I have the beginning, I spend a lot of time figuring out what the next move is. And I mean, it's a very slow process for me. Um, I wish I were more extemporaneous. I'm really jealous of people like my friend, Tim, our, our senior pastor, who is more extemporaneous and he writes, but he writes more in summary, um, writes notes to himself, and then he can follow and outline. I don't have the ability to really do that. I have to think on the word level and on the sentence level, and then I have to think about how am I going to transition from that sentence into the next sentence that talks about the text or whatever it is. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Uh so when you and I'm going to circle back on all this because you talked about the uh, the idea that writing is not just well you didn't talk about Scott Cairns talked about <laughs> uh, the yeah. idea that writing yeah. is not just communication but it's also cognition yes and so really you until you get down to that word level that you were just talking about you don't even feel like your bigger picture starts to come together. Yeah. Strangely for me, that's the way it works. I mean, again, I might have a vague sense of, okay, I need to talk about generosity or I need to talk about suffering or something like that. But in terms of like, what am I going to actually say about those things? I have to really get down to details. And for me, strangely, I've, I've never been able to like, an idea doesn't pop for me until it's an idea expressed in the right way. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Like sure. An idea, it's it an idea doesn't really work for me or doesn't come alive for me until I've found the language, the precise language with which to express it. And so I can get feedback from people, "Hey, what do you think about, you know, talking about this or that thing? What do you think about you know, talking about faith and they can say, oh yeah, you should mention this idea related to faith and this idea related to faith. And that's fine. It's 
moderately helpful, but ultimately I'm going to have to take those ideas and translate them into language that speaks to me. And until it speaks to me, I'm not going to really be able to, I, I feel like, leverage it like I want to. Yeah, you've got to get it down. I, I don't know if this is oversimplifying what you're saying, but you've got to get it down to the proper metaphor or the proper, some kind of tangible imagery. The proper wording. metaphor. And, and even for me, like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm probably an odd person in this respect, but even for me, the rhythm, the rhythm really matters. And, and maybe it's because I grew up as a drummer and I've, I've been playing drums my whole life, but there's something about the rhythm of a sentence. If it's, if it's not quite right, then I'm not done with that portion of the talk until I've figured out the way that that sentence is going to land. Yeah. So then as you work through all these drafts, I mean, you're starting to write Monday, Tuesday, but sometimes it doesn't all come together till Thursday. And oh man. And he, yeah, that's, I, I, I kind of cut, cut <laughs> off or left off in the middle of the process. But when I say it doesn't come together till Wednesday or Thursday, I'm just talking about having any real sense of traction. Um, before Wednesday or Thursday, I then spend typically all day Friday writing hmm. and, and maybe Saturday morning writing as well. And after I'm finally done with that, with getting it written, what I end up having is one sheet of computer paper with really small handwriting on a front and the back side. So I, I go up to the I go up to the pulpit with one piece of paper front and back and I have on that piece of paper circles down the left side of the margin with single words or short phrases in the circles. And those remind me of the sections that I'm going to be moving from one to the next. And then next to those circles, I have a number of sentences written with very, with the precise language that I want to use for that section. Hmm. Yeah. After I finish writing that sheet of paper, I then spend a good part of Saturday afternoon, sometimes into Saturday evening, although, you know, I'm irritated with myself when this happens, but Saturday afternoon into Saturday evening, reading down that sheet of paper and almost memorizing large chunks of, of the text. And I don't feel really free and really uh, prepared to get up and talk to people unless I know that I can spend a good portion of that talk just looking at people in the eyes and not looking down. And so by the time I'm, I'm getting up on Sunday, you know, I've written the thing and then I've edited it down to one sheet of paper and then I've almost memorized it to the point where I don't really need the piece of paper anymore if I get in trouble. And clearly you're an internal processor. <laughs> Maybe not yeah, clearly, but it would seem to right. me that you are. Uh, so I know so many people who rehearse their sermons yep. and it sounds like for you, both the writing process and then when you're talking about memorizing it, I assume that's just reading it over and over or do you talk it out loud? Both. Yeah, yeah both. I, I will... I will stand at, in my office here and like look out the window and talk it out loud. And I usually go by sections. I don't try to go from start to finish. Um, I go, okay, let's just do this opening section and get it, get it tight. And so I will start the talk and give the first two minutes, three minutes of that talk until I run into a place where I forgot where I was or where I you know, went off on a tangent or whatever it is, and then I'll go back and I'll do it over again so that it just becomes kind of rote. And I now feel like, you know, 
I don't have to worry too much about where I'm going and what I'm saying. Cause it's in me. Yeah. Do you- and again, I really wish, I mean, I I'm very jealous of the people who don't have to do that and are, are articulate enough to just speak with a set of notes. I, I wish that were true for me. It's just not. Yeah, sure. Uh, do you have any sense somewhere in that time between Tuesday and Saturday? Do yeah. you have any sense of how your structure comes together or how your structure develops? Do you have a pretty set structure or what, what happens? There? I don't have a, I guess. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a set structure and, um, that is probably why I'm I, the process. I've made the process more difficult for myself than I should perhaps. But for me, um, I think about it as, you know, this, this has got to develop as an organic kind of argument. I don't really like the word organic. It's used too often, but this has got to be a natural, um, this, this has got to become self-evident as the talk unfolds, but until the talk unfolds, I, I, I pretty much write until I've run out of my, my ideas or until I've really locked down an idea. And then I just sit there and I ask myself, okay, what do I say next? And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's in the writing because when you're handwriting, your hand is moving slower than your brain does. When I'm typing, that's part of the problem for me is when I'm typing, I can type faster than my brain moves. And so I get to the end of a sentence and I have to stop to wait for my brain to catch up. When I'm writing with my hand, I can get to the end of a line and my brain will already have gone beyond that line. And so sometimes I won't have to pause and figure out where to go next. My brain already is intuited where to go next and I'll keep writing. But there's a lot of start and stop. And in terms of structure, uh, I don't have a set structure. And I I know that I need to include the text somewhere. Um, I know that I need to figure out how to hook the people I'm talking to and how how to make this really relevant or applicable to uh, where they live and where I live. And so I'm looking for ways to do that throughout, but no, the structure is not set by any means. And, um, I think I I, I might say one more thing about this. I, I, I think about sermons as like each sermon, I think in my experience has its own set of unique rhetorical problems. I love thinking about rhetoric and, how effective rhetoric can be when applied to this situation versus that situation. You know, what I'm saying is based on the problem that the text presents, based on what's going on in the life of our community at this moment, based on what's going on in my life, the rhetoric is need to going to need to accommodate for that. The rhetoric is going to need to solve that problem in a way that it might not solve the problem based on the text before it. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying, I'm trying to ask myself the question in each sermon that I'm wrestling with, like, what is the rhetorical problem? Where is the resistance in people? Where are the rhetorical opportunities that this text might present or that this moment in time might present that another one wouldn't? And then how do I bring those things together? If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. So you, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leap here a little bit. Well, uh, let me stick on a prep question before I leap to where I was going to leap, which is Great. early in the week, you talk about the the study part, the commentaries and all that. Um, are you a Bible software or a book guy? Book. 
Yeah. Straight up. I'd have guessed. I'd have guessed. Yeah. I don't have any Bible software. What is that? <laughs> so are, are, do you have some go-to processes even for the, the study part of it? Do you lean – you mentioned commentaries. Do you lean mostly into commentaries or do you do some other historical or, or word study? I, I, um, I have some people I go to for Old Testament, some people I go to for New Testament, and then some – just kind of pastoral writers that I, that I just draw on um, based on whatever the text is I'm dealing with. So for example, I, let me think Brueggemann, um, Heschel, N.T. Wright, of course, Craig Blomberg, uh, Ben Witherington, maybe sometimes Nubigen, sometimes Moltmann. I look at Willard or Barbara Brown Taylor or Eugene Peterson or Beekner any of those kind of, uh, people. Um, I tend to sometime on Monday or Tuesday when I'm in my church office, which is where all my commentaries are. Um, I'll just sit and face the bookshelf and think, okay, what do I need to take home this week? Cause I'm writing at home. And so hmm. I'll, I'll pull those books from the shelf knowing that I might use them or I might not. And then I, I take those books home with me for the week. I, I should backtrack and say, um, I actually do use online. I use Bible gateway for quick access uh-huh. sometimes. Yeah. And then I also use that blue letter Bible thing because it has, um, the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, easily available. And so I'll use that occasionally. Otherwise I don't, I don't know that I use anything computer related. All right, so this is where I, this is where I was going to leap a little bit ago because I have the uh, I'm I might have my timeline wrong, but just trying yes. to put some pieces together. I know you have the uh, MFA in writing, and yeah. you talked about how you know even earlier in your in your early twenties you were preaching a lot. So can I assume? Well, I'm not going to assume. I'll just ask you straight out. Did Feel you, free to. Assume. Were you preaching? Did you have experience preaching before you went off and got the MFA? I did. MF, yeah, MFA, I, I yeah, spent, I worked at a church here in Kansas City, a different church from Jacob's Well from um, 22, I think it was, till about 28. And so I was overseeing a, a community that was comprised mainly of 20 people in their 20s and 30s, kind of post-college, college and post-college. Yeah. And I was the primary communicator for that. And so I really cut my teeth um learning to give sermons for that age demographic and uh, having to give sermons maybe two to three a month. So how did, how did getting an MFA in writing change your sermons? It's a good question. Um, part of it is probably that I, I, I think I learned better that difference that I talked about between writing as expression versus cognition, writing as epistemological. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being able to trust the language itself to lead me somewhere, that that is something I learned to do more of when I was in graduate school. Um, I think my I think my sermons got tighter, frankly. Um, I think I figured out how to uh create organic unity within a talk so that there's just not all these various ideas spinning off the core message. Um, I don't know, man, I'd have to think a little bit more about that. That's a, 
it's a really good question. When you, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it changed me, except that it it just made me more and more attuned to. I think it made me more and more attuned to um, the work required to make language really live. Hmm. You know, there's there's when you're a preacher. Barbara Brown Taylor talks about this. You know, she has that book. You may have read it when God is silent. And um, a lot of the book has to do with the art of preaching. And one of the points that she makes is that we live in an age uh, in which the word is a contested thing. Like we live in an age where language is so often used to manipulate and to seduce people. It's, it's so often used to sell something that oftentimes people are highly skeptical of anyone, especially if they're a good talker. And she talks about the fact that, you know, part of the way we've been given dominion as human beings been made in the image of God is that we have been given, we've been gifted, you might say, the power of the word. And yet it's this really difficult thing to handle well because of that contested relationship. And we're often talking to people, especially people who have been in church a long time, who are highly conversant with the lexicon of faith. And the result is that before we utter a word like grace or hope or sin or guilt or gospel, something like that, before we even utter the word, they think they already know what the word means, right? Sure, yeah. And so I think um, because language is so larded over and we've inherited language that can be at times even seen as like banal, um, the preacher has to work even a little bit harder to find a language set that really speaks um, to people in a way that's uh, remotely fresh, I guess. So that's one of the things that grad school helped me think harder about. Hmm. So, I mean, it certainly shaped your process, but shaped what you're trying to accomplish, it sounds like, too. Um, maybe so. What do you mean by that? Well, just, just, I mean, you talked about the cognition part, so that would be the, the writing, the process okay. of writing the sermon sure. was shaped by it. But everything you were just describing here just now, it seems like that comes through as much as in what you're trying to accomplish as the process you're going about to prepare the I sermon. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, what is, what does evaluation look like of your sermons? On the back end? Yeah. Oh man, I'm, <laughs> I'm liking this answer already. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, um, a lot of preachers I know, uh, in that I, I invest a lot of my self-worth in what I produce, you know, and I spend a lot of time worrying about not just whether God used what I was saying to change someone for the better or to um, reveal God's self in some way to that person. I spend a lot of time worrying about whether or not I was uh, adequately articulate or smart or impressive. And on the back end, in terms of evaluating, evaluating a sermon, um, if I'm not careful, I'm going to spend a lot of my time evaluating those things. 
how did I pull off these transitions? You know, how did I articulate that one part that I was worried about? Did I have people sitting up in their, in the pews? You know, when I'm in the middle of a, of a sermon, I, I don't know about you, John, but I actually really dislike the sermon preparation process. Hmm. Um, it's really painful to me. It brings to the surface an enormous amount of insecurity. Um, most sermons, and it depends on how healthy I am, you know, the more healthy I am, the less this is true. But most sermons at some point uh, begin to feel like a referendum on my competence or my intelligence or um, my my pastoral chops, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And I really, I really don't like um, preparing that's not the reward for me of preaching. The reward for me of preaching is the moment when we're stand, I'm standing in a room with this group of people and they are all leaning forward in their pews. And I know that God is doing something more than what I, you know, prepare. I, God is using what I prepared in a way that goes beyond whatever competence I brought to the table. Yeah. Um, I just spun off. I was, you're, you're asking about evaluation on the back end. And what I was saying about evaluation on the back end is that if I'm not careful, I will spend a lot of time critiquing the craft and not as much time um, asking myself whether or not I was faithful from start to finish. And to me, like that's kind of a qualitative question or even a subjective question. It's, it's not something easily quantifiable, but most of the time, if I can say to myself on the back end, you know what, you tried to be present to God, you really studied and did the hard work, and you prepared diligently, and you were open to God's spirit as you went along, and now you've done the work. If I can just say that to myself on the back end, then I leave, if I'm healthy, I can leave the rest of the results of that thing up to God, hmm. posterity, <laughs> fill in the blank. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if that gets at your question entirely. What, what are, what are some of your benchmarks when you're evaluating? I'm curious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because, uh, I was just asked this question. Um, okay. I was just a, a guest on another podcast and, and they asked me that question. I said, Hey, you can ask that. Wasn't I? I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, I, I roundabout as I was answering that question kind of came to uh, something that was helpful for me, which is I've at least gotten to a point where and I would have resisted this for a long time, but I've at least gotten to a point where I have a, a fairly set structure of what I'm trying to accomplish in a sermon. And, yeah. you know, like I, I build it around that structure and yeah. um what, I think I, I have some notes from yeah, you in, actually, fact, in my yeah, little about that in, in my little book. I talked about, talked that in about Delaware, it in Delaware, so, right? Um, so I think just having and for those of you, you can go listen to the After Nine Ministry podcast because I talked about that structure there too. But I, um, I just think knowing that is really helpful to me because at the end, you know, at the end of a day, I might feel like oh, I could have done a better job of you know, bringing the contemporary trajectory to the text, or I could have done a better job of stating clearly the calling or, 
yeah. usually the one I feel like I, I struggle with the most is the imagination piece. You know, what, what, what does it look like for people to live out this calling we're talking about? Mm-hmm. But it's really helped me because I might be able to articulate then I didn't do this part as well yesterday, but I still know I did these other things that I hope to try to accomplish each week. So that's been, that's been helpful for me. That, yeah. And that helps me think about my own stuff. Cause I think I was responding to your question more existentially, you know, and, and then there, there is of course the mechanics of the thing itself. And that's part of what I hear you saying, like, did I do this work, you know, like, like I meant to. And so for me, I would say there's, there's some of that, you know, there's, there's the question of, did I explicate the text well? Did I help people know how to respond? Um, did I inspire them or help them imagine um, a better way of dealing with this issue, this decision, crossing this bridge, et cetera? But, you know, it's, it's things like, was it clear? You know, was it um, compelling? And then did I give people, was the call um, evident? You yeah. know, so those kind of things, yes, I absolutely um, do consider, but I don't, I guess I don't spend nearly as much time asking myself on the back end those kinds of questions as I should. Maybe partly because to be honest, I spend so much energy trying to ask those questions on the front end hmm. that by the time I'm there, I feel like I've answered those questions as best I can. Yeah. Well, what are some one of my one of my favorite questions, purely for my own selfish benefit? But what are some books that uh, or other resources that have been helpful for shaping you as a preacher? Well, I mentioned that Barbara Brown Taylor book, "When God Is Silent." That yeah. one um, was very. I, there's three books that have that I feel like have formed me as a preacher specifically. One being Brueggemann's "Finally Comes the Poet." Um, one being Beekner's Telling the Truth, hmm. the gospel, gospel is tragedy, comedy, fairy tale, that one. Um, I also love his Alphabet of Grace, by the way, which is um, a little densely poetic at times, but is pretty pretty profound, I think. And then Taylor, as I mentioned, When God is Silent. Yeah. Um, outside of that, you know, I spend a lot of time reading non-Christian literature. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time reading, you know, essay collections, memoirs, all that sort of thing. And so um, I don't know to what degree I could say that they form me as a preacher, but they're definitely kind of in the background. They're the background music of my life much of the time. And I think sometimes I find language sets in secular literature that I typically wouldn't be able to find in, you know, the, a, a Christian book on preaching. Yeah. As are, opposed to all those, those non-Christian have... books on preaching. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> sure, sure. What are, what are a few of those literature books that you've read that you feel like have kind of resonated with you and you still carry with you? Um, I'm looking around my office right now. By all means. Yeah. You know, I'm actually reading a, I'm reading an essay collection right now. It's, it's 
just out this year called Proxies by a guy named Brian Blanchfield. Um, he's the editor of a journal, literary journal called Fence, and he's a poet, I think. I mean, he's had, he's put out two collections of poems. I think this is his first book of prose, but it's an essay collection. Um, it's an essay collection written uh, without recourse to any kind of research material. So he just sat down on a given day and wrote on a particular topic and tried to think about the ways that this topic implicated him or unearthed parts of his life in which he still feels shame or guilt or confusion, something like that. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty transparent um, book. The guy is by no means a person of faith, but it's, it's brilliant. It's really, really smart. And um, that's that. Proxies is one I'm reading right now. Hmm. There's a writer named Kristen Dombeck, D-O-M-B-E-K, that I came across in a journal called N Plus One. That's I, I read a journal called N Plus One that's actually, it comes out quarterly and um, lots of stuff on politics and literature and um, How is that written or spelled? The letter N, mm -hmm. the plus sign, the number one. Okay. As simple as possible. That's right. Um, very smart and uh, just keeps me thinking. It's one of these journals that gets me thinking harder uh, about the world uh, than I would think on my own. Yeah. Kristen Dombeck, I discovered in M plus one. Um, initially she has a book coming out this summer, I believe, and I'm not sure what it's on yet, but D O M B E K. I should warn anyone who's actually interested in, <laughs> in going to, in tracking down Kristen Dombeck. She's again, not a Christian and writes some, uh, pretty explicitly, uh, vulgar sexual stuff occasionally. So. Yeah. Just be warned, you know, I'm not recommending this to your Christian uh, mother-in-law or something like that. Don't, don't pass Kristen Dombeck off to her. But I think it's, it's helpful to read, uh, not speaking to her specifically, but I think it's helpful to read some of that kind of, you know, popular essays or uh, simply because even if the people who are in our churches are not reading those things, they're yeah. consuming media that yeah. is probably being influenced by people who are writing those things. And yeah. it's, it's just a way to kind of engage that broader story and be aware of it. It's helpful for me. And, you know, part of what's compelling to me about Dombeck is um, she does write occasionally about faith, but as someone who is deconverted, and so she had a piece uh, in the Paris Review last year, I think it was, and it's now in Best American Essays of last year, I think, 2015. Um, and it's called Letter from Williamsburg. And the first two paragraphs of this essay are her describing what it was like to grow up believing in God, to wake up believing in God on any given day, and what prayer was like, and the way that it kind of would just transform her experience. And then she talks about what it felt like to lose that feeling. And, you know, the reality is that most of us live in some um, in-between place oftentimes when it relates to like confidence and doubt, right? And it's just 
for me, compelling reading to have someone describe that experience uh, in a similar way. A guy named John Jeremiah Sullivan put yeah. out a book of, you know him. Yeah. Okay, good. Oh, I don't that, need to what talk was about that called him. though. Uh, he put out a book called Pulphead two yeah. or three years ago. Probably and the more. first essay in that collection is called Upon This Rock. And it's about his going to a Christian rock festival as a non-believer. And the, the piece starts out with him being just kind of aloof and above it all and, and skeptical and slowly, but surely as the essay progresses, he implicates himself and gets hooked by the people that he meets who are attending this festival. And it's a really moving piece about his own uh, complicated relationship to faith. Hmm. Yeah. And sometimes people, not always, I don't, I don't want to, you know, make this overly simplistic, but sometimes people outside of faith are better at writing about issues of faith than people inside of faith. <laughs> There's I, a agree. Better, better, I agree. Better honesty to it anyway. I agree. That's what I'm talking about. That's what, that's what's compelling to me. Yeah. Well, Isaac, um, uh, jacobswell.org, if, if I recall right, is the church's website. Right. But yeah. uh, any any other ways that somebody might be able to keep up? Do you do the tweets or the <laughs> anything? You, you know, I don't. Yeah. I don't. Um, maybe someday, but right now I'm I'm trying to keep my life as manageable as possible. My relationship to technology as manageable as possible. So I. Um, spend a lot of time on my phone as it is. I don't, I don't tweet. I'm not on Facebook, but people are welcome to track me down via Jacob's wall. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, John. It Great to talk to you. I enjoyed this. As yeah. Well. Likewise. Thought I would. Blessings. You too. So much fun to talk with Isaac. I think I told him afterwards uh, that anytime somebody mentions Beekner, who I've only read a little bit of, but I just enjoy so much. Anytime somebody mentions Beekner in the midst of an interview, it's pretty much a guarantee that that was one that resonated with me in, in particular ways. I almost said enjoy, but resonated with me. That's what I meant to say. That's what I always mean to say when I say enjoy. You can find any of the resources that Isaac mentioned at our website, sunsmith.com. Uh, please consider rating the podcast on iTunes, supporting the podcast on Patreon or uh, even just sharing the podcast on your favorite social media. Thanks so much. 